As we uh, come before God's Word tonight, um, we uh, recognize that this is God's Word, um, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you know, we are looking at um, some of the problems in the Corinthian church, a broad overview of the book of Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 17 to 34, the Lord's Supper, which is why we are celebrating the Lord's Supper tonight. Before we um, begin reading God's word, let me just uh, lead us with a word of prayer, asking God for help in understanding it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you use it to speak to our hearts and to transform our lives and to give us hope in a world that is um, at times disconcerting to us. Lord, um, we pray that, I pray that you would give uh, me clarity of thought and speech as I uh, preach your word and that we might all learn from it and be built up and encouraged in our Christian faith and walk. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the word of the Lord taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17 on the Lord's Supper. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, Corinthians, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one of you go, goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, the other gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humil humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So really, the situation here in Corinth is a messy situation. It's Sunday. Imagine this. In Corinth, it's Sunday. It's time for church. You, um, you walk down to the house where the church would have met. Back then, the churches usually would have met in the, the homes of, of someone who had uh, enough space. 
And as you walk down the street to go worship, and you walk through the doors of someone's home, you realize something is not right. The guy who is hosting the church service opens the door for you, and um, he's drunk. And there are a few people sitting around the table, and guess what? They're drunk. Everyone's drunk. And it's possible that they've been drinking all afternoon. That's the situation in Corinth. The morning tea or the lunch or whatever food has been prepared for the meal or for the day, for the church service, it's all gone. And the food that has been prepared for the church service um, originally was meant to feed the entire congregation. A party has taken place before church. The only people invited to this party were the rich, uh, the successful, the elite, and the powerful. The people who did not get the invite were the slaves, the widows, the poor, the outcast, and the orphan. For some people, the best meal of the week would have been on Sunday, especially for the slaves and for the widow and for the poor. They would have looked forward to church on Sunday because they knew that by coming to church, they would, they would get fed with a, a good meal. It would be at church that the street people would have been fed. But in Corinth, the rich are refusing to eat with the poor. And so they'd go off and they'd have their own little exclusive uh, dinner party without the riffraff of society. So that's the situation here that uh, Paul is addressing. Now, this obnoxious behavior, it was having a really negative effect on the church. You might remember from previous chapters and previous sermons that there are a whole list of problems happening in Corinth. In chapter 1, we, Joel preached that um, the church was really divided. In chapter 6, um, we learned that there were some members of the church that were uh, taking other members to court and suing them. Then in chapter 8, there were arguments about food that had been sacrificed to idols. And then um, here in, in Corinth, there was this issue with the Lord's Supper in chapter 10. And the problem is that the Corinthians did not really understand what the Lord's Supper was about or how they should celebrate it, nor did they really care. Because as the text tells us, the Corinthians were more concerned with filling their bellies and getting drunk, then remembering the, the death and resurrection of their Lord. And so Paul instructs them in this chapter as to what they should be doing when they celebrate this meal. And as you can see in your text, uh, the Lord, uh, this chapter is about the Lord's Supper. If you look at the heading, it says the Lord's Supper. So tonight, I'll say five things about the Lord's Supper pertaining to how, how we as Christians should think about and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And here are the, sorry, not five things, four things. First, uh, the first thing is that when we celebrate this meal, we should look back. Second, when we celebrate this meal, we should look forward. Third, we should look outward. And then uh, fourth, we should look at ourselves. So that's where I'm going tonight as we look at this topic, the Lord's Supper. So first, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to look back. Look at verse 25. There's this uh, kind of this instruction, right, in verse 25? 
when you eat of the bread, you drink of the wine, what are you doing it? In remembrance of Jesus. Now, in 22 days from now, um, we are going to have our own celebration. Uh, we are going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Um, we'll sit around the table. Hopefully, you know, there will be stuffing and turkey and mashed potatoes, and our families will celebrate Christmas. And Christmas, as we know, is not about the food, even though food is a great way to celebrate Christmas. Um, neither is it about the gifts or the trees or the stockings. Christmas is about the coming of Christ. And twice in the year we have these major holidays, right? We have Christmas at the end of the year and we have Easter kind of at the beginning of the year. And every time we celebrate these holidays, we're remembering something about either the birth or the death of Jesus. In effect, we are looking back, we are taking time in the year to look back at, and remember um, to remember the angels, to remember the magi, to remember the cross, to remember the empty tomb. Now, before Jesus came to this earth, there was no Christmas and there was no Easter. But the people of Israel did celebrate a, list of, a whole list of holidays. There were seven holidays that the Israelites celebrated in the Old Testament. And one of these holidays, these festivals, was called Passover. And it takes place in March or April. And during the Passover, families would sit down and they would, um, uh, they would take part in a meal of bread and wine and lamb and bitter herbs. And during this feast, they would remember. What would they remember? The Exodus. They would remember everything that happened uh, in the book of Exodus and they would remember the story of Moses and they would remember how Pharaoh brutally enslaved the Israelites. They would look back to um, the ten times that Moses demanded that God's people would be released from slavery. They would think about how Moses uh, would, would demand to Pharaoh that, that, God, that uh, he let God's people go. The kids would gather around the table. Grandpa or dad or whoever would describe each of the ten plagues that fell upon uh, the Egyptians every time that Pharaoh said no, the plague of bloody water, the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of sickness, the plague of darkness, and then they'd remember that final plague, a plague uh, where, um, where the, the firstborn son of every household would die, a plague of death. And they would remember how death cast its dark shadow upon the entire nation of Egypt and how it would strike every home and every family. And they would look back in this celebration to that moment. They would look back to the moment when death would pass through the streets, knocking on every door, taking the lives of the firstborn son in each house. Now, before uh, God struck the nation of Egypt with that plague of death, Moses went to Pharaoh and warned him that if he did not let God's people go, that, uh, that this plague would surely uh, rock the nation. Pharaoh was warned, but he didn't act. 
Moses, knowing what was going to happen, went to the Jews and said, Look, God told me that death is about to strike, and this is what you are to do to escape death. And he gave them instructions. He said, You are to take a lamb, a spotless lamb without blemish, and you are to sacrifice that lamb, and you are to take the blood of that lamb, and what are you to do with it? You're to take that blood and wipe it on the doorpost of your home. And in so doing, the angel of death will pass over your home. And so that's what the Israelites do. They sacrifice a lamb and they paint the blood on the doorpost. And when the plague strikes the entire nation of Egypt, what happens? The people living in those homes where the blood of the lamb was painted over their doorpost, they survived. They were spared from death. And that's why this holiday is called Passover, because it's the night that death passed over God's people. Now, of course, uh, the story continues. In the morning, Pharaoh wakes up. Uh, He realizes the horror of what has happened during the night. And in the state of grief and having lost his son, he lets God's people go. And that's the short version of the story. But essentially, Every uh, Passover, year after year after year, families would sit around the table and they'd tell that story. Just, how, just like how we might at Christmas tell the story of Jesus and his birth and the Magi and the, and the angel. They would tell this story year after year after year, that death passed over God's people. This holiday is all about escaping death. And we read here in verse 23... Um, that on the night, or we know uh, from Luke's gospel, actually, that on the night of his betrayal and death, Jesus was celebrating this holiday. He was celebrating this meal. He was celebrating the Passover. He and his disciples had gone up to the upper room, and they were sitting around the table, and they were telling the story of Moses, and how Moses uh, demanded ten times that God let, let, or that Pharaoh let God's people go, and how Pharaoh wouldn't budge, and how death struck the nation, and how God's people were saved from death. And so the disciples are eating and drinking as a way to remember that God had saved his people from death. And in the middle of that celebration, you know what happens? Jesus does something out of the ordinary. He gets up, and he announces his own death. Look at verse 24. He takes a piece of bread, and and not just a sweet, fluffy piece of bread. He takes what Jewish people call matzah bread. It looks kind of like this. It looks like a cracker, a piece of, of what looks to be like a stale cracker, flat bread. It has no yeast in it. And he takes the bread, and he snaps it in half. And what does he say? He says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then then likewise, he takes a cup. And let me just say, it was not a cup filled with grape juice. This was the real deal. This stuff was filled with wine, real wine. Wine that was bittersweet. I think there, there might be some symbolism there to the bitterness of Jesus' death and the sweetness of Jesus' death. But that's just my opinion. 
And so he takes the cup and he lifts it up. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And do this every time you drink of it. Do it in remembrance of me. And he's making a statement by, by announcing his own death in the middle of the Passover meal. He is saying that, 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 that this meal, that it is not just purely about Moses, but this meal is actually about me. See, he's giving his disciples a new meal. For years they celebrated the Passover meal, and now, here on the night of his death, during the celebration of Passover, he's saying that, that the Passover, the Old Testament Passover, has been fulfilled in me. And he's saying that as you celebrate this meal to his disciples, whenever you eat it, whenever you drink of it, think about me. And remember that because Jesus died, or that because Jesus would die, that, his de- that death would pass over his disciples, and likewise, that because Jesus died for us, death will pass over us. And it has passed over us. And from that night on, the followers of Jesus, they stopped celebrating the Old Testament Passover. And they started to celebrate a different kind of Passover that we call the Lord's Supper. And this Passover symbolizes also an escape from death for us. An escape from the wages of sin, which is death. And then from that night on, after his resurrection, the, the believers would gather in each other's homes every week, week after week after week. And each Sunday, every Sunday, they would celebrate what's called um, an agape meal, or a, what you could translate that as a love feast, a big meal. And at the end of the meal, they would partake of the bread and the wine, and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, and they would remember his death and resurrection week after week after week. Every week, they would observe the Lord's Supper. Now, in the New Testament church, in the early church, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have um, projectors. They didn't have PowerPoints. They didn't have stained glass windows. Uh, All they had, they didn't even have a a cross hanging uh, up in the church. All they had was uh, a simple cup and a piece of bread. That's all they had. And that bread and that wine, it would serve as a physical, a tangible reminder of Jesus. It was this reminder that you could could taste and that you could touch and that you could smell and that you could see. And he leaves them with that reminder. My grandmother used to have this old box in her closet. It was an old World War II era box. And in it, um, there were a few items and the box smelt like leather and pipe tobacco. And occasionally, she would take it out of her closet, and she would bring it to me, and she'd do this weird thing. She'd be like, here, smell it, smell it. I'm like, why do you want me to smell the box? I remember once I smelt it. And she says, there, this, this, is, this is your great-grandfather. This is him. This is what he smelt like. And Jesus is leaving us with this 
this physical reminder of, of who he is that we can see and that we can touch and that we can smell. And, we, and there is something about this meal that is meant to bring our, our senses back to the cross and back to Christ. And by seeing and tasting the broken bread and casting your eye upon the cup, you are, you are brought back to the, the table where Jesus sat with his disciples, where he announced his own death. You are brought back to the, the tomb where he was raised from the dead. And we remember that, that not only was he punished for our sin, but he, in his death and resurrection, forgave all of our sins. So we look back as we, well, tonight, you, you will celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what you're going to do. You're going to look back at what Christ has done. But we don't just look back. We also look forward. Because look at um, verse 26. Paul says, whenever you eat or drink the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming his death until he comes again. So often, we focus primarily, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we focus primarily on the death of Jesus. But we forget about the life of Jesus. And the Lord's Supper symbolizes also the life of Jesus. Um, the Lord's Supper is not a funeral. The Lord's Supper is not a funeral because Jesus is not dead. So we are not mourning his loss. We are celebrating the fact that he will come again. And as I said a few weeks ago, all of us here tonight, all of you, you will see Jesus. Either he will return within your lifetime or you will leave this earth to go see him. And you know that the book of Revelation tells us that when we go to see Jesus, that when we are in his presence, he will prepare a feast for us. Oh, that's Revelation 19. There's this image of, of Christ. It's called Christ and his church. And the meal is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And basically, in Revelation 19, a whole banquet is set out by Christ for his people. And so... You know, as we eat this supper today, we are, we are given a foretaste of what is to come. You know, when I was a kid, um, well, not just when I was a kid, even now, when I go to Costco, I often uh, make laps, do laps around the Costco, and I visit all the different taste testing sections. I try all the different, you know, delicious, um, items that there are. And then I pick my favorite and I, I beg my, I used to beg my mom, now I beg my wife <laughs> to, to purchase one of these um, items for dinner. The little taste, uh, taste tester whets my appetite for something better. And really that's what the Lord's Supper is meant to do. It's, it's meant to whet our appetite. It's meant to give us a taste test of heaven. You know, yeah, we, right now, we are living here on earth and things are not perfect and and we worship the Lord in a poorly air-conditioned building together, but we are still given this sense in celebrating the Lord's Supper, this taste of what heaven will be like. Because as we celebrate, we are celebrating in the presence of Christ and each other. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But it points us not just backwards, but it points us forward. And then third, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should be looking outward. 
we should be looking um, at, at the elements and at each other. Now, I have this habit during the Lord's Supper just to keep my head down and I'll look at my feet, and that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but I would encourage you, maybe just think about this, to look up, to look at, look at the table, to look at the elements, to look at the bread, to look at the wine, to look at each other, and don't stare at each other, but just look around. Look at, at the people who are sitting next to you. Take note of the, the guy uh, who talks too much. That would be me. Take note of the person who you don't uh, agree with. Take note of the person you don't know very well. And think about the fact that all of these people around you are, are sharing in the same meal, they're sharing in the same loaf, and drinking the same wine as you. See, for all the differences you have with the people sitting in this church, you have something in common. Christ died for you. And because Christ died for you, through faith you have become children of God, you've joined his family. And so this meal, we could call it a family meal where we are reminded of the unity, the real unity that we have as a church. Um, I would say that the Lord's Supper is in a way a defense against disunity and fracture in the church, especially as we frequently celebrate the Lord's Supper. If we frequently celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time that we are reminded of the unity that we have, we we leave this place endeavoring to practice that unity and to not let fights and squabbles and quarrels divide us as a church. Which is why Paul is angered by the Corinthians in this chapter. He's, he's pretty upset. He speaks to them in what I would say are harsh tones because the Corinthian church has decided to exclude people from this meal. And he says this in verses 33 and 34. Look at this. He gives them instructions. Specific instructions not to eat the meal unless the congregation is actually present. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give directions when I come. Now, I realize that it is very dangerous business to um, talk about COVID, but I'm, I'm going to talk about COVID. And during COVID, we didn't celebrate the Lord's Supper. And at least my conviction was uh, this reason, that we did not have everyone together in one congregation at one time. That, we didn't, that, we, there, that not everyone had an opportunity to worship together. And so it was important for us as a church to wait until everyone could be together uh, to partake in the Lord's Supper because this meal symbolizes our union and our unity as a church. Now, as you celebrate tonight, do not forget the most important guest who sits at the table, and he sits at the head of the table. Now, who is this guest? Well, you all know him. It's the Sunday school answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ is called the bridegroom. He is the head of the church, and he is present here at the Lord's Supper. The question is, how is he present? Now, some people in the church will say that he's not present, that when we partake in the Lord's Supper, that we're just remembering Jesus, and that's called the, the memorial view, which I, 
I disagree with. The Catholics will tell you that when you eat the bread and you drink of the cup, that you are actually munching on flesh and drinking blood of some type, maybe O negative, something like that. And you'll be happy to hear that I don't agree with that view either. But I would say that the Bible teaches that in some way, Christ is present with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Not that we are drinking blood or eating flesh, but that Christ is spiritually present because he is God. He is in his divinity as God. He presides over his table. He's with us, though we can't perceive him with our eyes. He is with us, present spiritually. Now, I make that point uh, from chapter 10. Look at chapter 10. I hope this is not too confusing for you. Um, If you have questions about this after the service, you can come talk to me. But I want to point out chapter 10, specifically verses 1 to 5. I'll just read it to you, and then I'll explain it. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. Paul, speaking of the wilderness generation in the book of Exodus, says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, our ancestors, they were all under the cloud, that is, um, the cloud being God, um, the the cloud of uh, smoke that followed them in the desert, and they all passed through the sea, referring to their trek through the Red Sea that was uh, separated by Moses. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and what did they do? They all ate the spiritual food being manna, And they all drank the spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And who was that rock? If you're reading in your Bibles. Christ. The rock was Christ, present with them. So Paul takes us back in time. He takes us back to the Exodus. And he reminds them of the wilderness generation. And he says, in that generation, uh, the people were wandering, and they were eating spiritual food, the manna, and they were drinking from the spiritual rock. And the rock that followed them was Christ. So, in some way, Christ was spiritually present with them in the Old Testament. Though we might not fully understand how that all works. And then he continues with the argument in verse 16. Look at verse 16. He applies the same principle to the Lord's Supper. And he says that when we drink from the cup, we are participating with who? Christ, Jesus. We are participating with Christ. So I would take that to mean that we are united to Christ and he is present with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So though the bread and the wine are physical signs, they are meant to communicate spiritual realities that when we sit at the Lord's table, um, the Lord is not absent. He's there at his own meal. So God, the second person of the Trinity, is present with us. Now, the very fact that Christ is present with us in the Lord's Supper changes the way that we celebrate this this meal, changes changes the way that we think about the meal. Let me explain, illustrate. If I were to go to dinner with a few guys, I probably would be tempted to just rock up in sweatpants. I probably wouldn't care about showering. I probably wouldn't use my manners. 
it's just a bunch of guys hanging out for dinner. But compare that to my first date. I did shower for my first date. On my first date with Janelle, I showered, I shaved, I scrubbed up, I put on nice clothing, I didn't burp at the table, I used my manners. And the point here that I'm trying to illustrate is that the table we come to is the table of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, which means that we may not come to the table in an unworthy manner. We may not come to the table flippantly. We may not come to the table callously or without any kind of thought or preparation because we come to a table where Christ is spiritually present. And that really was the, the crux of the issue in Corinth. They were coming to this table, but they were making a mockery of it. They were coming in an unworthy manner. They were getting drunk. They were excluding fellow Christians. Uh, they were partaking of, a, of the meal in, uh, in callous ways. And Paul tells them in verse 30 that their behavior was so irresponsible and so callous and so irreverent that God decided to bring judgment on that local church. So that, so much so that people in the congregation were actually getting sick and dying. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you know, the Lord's Supper is poison. Um, and it doesn't mean that we should be scared of the Lord's Supper. Nor does it mean that God will, part, God will strike you dead if you partake in an unworthy manner. I would say that that, that specific scenario was... Um, was, it, was an instance that was unique to Corinth. But the Bible tell, does tell us that there are consequences for those who eat in an unworthy manner, who partake of it in, an, in a, a callous way. It does mean that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to approach the table in a way that honors who? The host, Jesus. And that leads me to a final point. We should also look at ourselves. So we should ask ourselves, first of all, the first question as you approach the Lord's table is, should I, should I come to it? Should I take part in the Lord's Supper? That's an important question. It's an important th question that you have to ask yourself uh, this evening. Some of us are, should not partake. Perhaps maybe you're not a Christian or you're persistently defying God uh, with your sin or perhaps you don't understand what's happening in the table. There, there might be many different reasons why you should not partake in the Lord's Supper. And if you are looking at this, this whole Lord's Supper business and thinking, oh, I don't really understand what's going on, uh, that's probably an indicator that you shouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper. You should wait. You should learn who Jesus is. You should ask questions about what the gospel is and, and what it means to live as a follower and a disciple of Christ. But, for those who do take part, what does Paul say here? He says, you should examine yourself. Now, all too often, I think, um, people misinterpret those words and this warning. They think that the Lord's Supper is designed for good people, and it's designed for even perfect people. Really, 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 really faithful Christians who have their act together who are always smiling on Sunday morning. And um, you might be one of these people who is thinking, man, yeah, I'm really struggling with my faith and I do not have my whole act together. And so I better not partake because I'm unworthy. And they measure their faithfulness by a percentage. They say this week, I'm, you know, I've been 10% faithful or 
last week I was 20% faithful, or I sinned this week, or, or I must not be worthy enough to share a meal with the Lord Jesus. Well, if that's you, and you are a Christian, a true believer, I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus spent his ministry eating with who? Sinners and tax collectors. He, he, he shared a meal with Mary Magdalene, and Mary Magdalene, we don't know much about her. She may have been a former prostitute. We look at a Peter who denied Christ. He shared a meal with Jesus. We look at Zacchaeus, this corrupt tax collector. He shared a meal with Jesus. See, Jesus purposefully in his ministry goes and dines with who? Weary, weak, sinful people. So people often, the point I'm making here is that people sometimes misinterpret the instructions here. They assume the Lord's Supper is for for perfect people, for sinless people, for, for people who count themselves as truly worthy. But what does Paul say here in the text? He says that the Lord's Supper he, does, he never says that the Lord's Supper is for worthy people. What does he say? He says that you should eat and drink in what? A worthy manner. So it's about the way that you approach the table. No one is worthy of this meal. No one is worthy of God's grace. Paul in Romans said that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the invitation here is not an invitation extended to the perfect because no one would partake, who of us would partake if that were the case? But we still must examine ourselves. We still must um, take a, a hard look at our own hearts before we approach the table. And in this exam, we should ask ourselves two questions. Question one, am I coming to this table with a repentant heart? And second, am I coming to this table trusting in Jesus Christ? Those are the two questions we all have to ask ourselves. Do I come to the table with a repentant heart? And do I trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins? If you've resolved those two questions, well, then you should go get baptized. (laughs) Or confirm your baptism through profession of faith. Because in baptism, we begin the journey and we identify with God's people. And in the Lord's Supper, we are fed by Christ. And I would argue, um, though I wouldn't stake my life on it, but I would argue that baptism always precedes the Lord's Supper. And so first you're baptized. Believe, you're baptized. Or if you were baptized as a kid, you, you profess your faith in Christ, and then you come to the table and you partake. But my point, the main point is this, that if you are a Christian, It doesn't really matter whether you are a struggling Christian, a baby Christian, a sick Christian, a weak Christian, a Christian who is wrestling with the assurance of their salvation, a Christian who is struggling with depression, a Christian who is struggling with anxiety, a Christian who has just been given uh, a a really difficult uh, um, diagnosis. Whatever kind of Christian you are, if you belong to Christ, you can resolve those two questions. I have a, I'm coming with a repentant heart, and I'm coming with a heart of faith. If you can resolve those two questions, then you can come to the table. 
And this meal is for you and for your benefit. And as you take part, God is going to communicate something to you. And you will remember that just as food nourishes your body, Jesus promises to nourish the soul, to give peace to those who lack peace, to bring comfort to those who are anxious, to bring assurance to those who are rattled by doubt. Um, in this meal, Jesus promises to strengthen the faith of weak and weary sinners. And so those are some things to consider tonight as we approach the Lord's Supper, as we partake. And we, we, do, we do examine ourselves. Um, but as we examine ourselves, we are to examine not how good we've been, but whether the pre- there is the presence in our heart of faith and repentance as we come before the table. And as you partake in just a moment, you might take a moment to look back at what Christ has done for you. You might look back to your baptism. You might look back to um, God's faithfulness to you and putting you in a Christian home and, and, um, and teaching you the gospel all these years. You might look back to that moment of conversion, that dramatic conversion that you had. And you might think about God's faithfulness to you and what he has done in your life. And as you, as you do that, as you look back, you look forward to heaven, right? And you look outward to other Christians, and you remember the unity that you have with them. And then, of course, you examine yourself, asking yourself, do I belong to Jesus? And have I turned from my sin, and am I trusting in him alone for my salvation? Let me close with these words. Beautiful words. Not my words, the words of your Savior. And he calls out to you and he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.